Last week, we talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We talked about our freedoms in Christ. talked about the gray area we have that Christians dwell in, that are things that are not specifically forbidden in Scripture, but that we have freedom as Christians to participate in some of those activities. And there's things like smoking, drinking in moderation, piercings and tattoos. And, and I gave a survey out to the body, and, and I don't have the slide today, so you'll have to just imagine you see it. Seventeen of you guys responded to the survey, and in the first part of the survey I asked, is it okay for a Christian to participate in certain gray area activities that are not specifically forbidden in Scripture? And I asked yes or no. And then I asked if you engaged in that activity. And so there was quite a diversity, actually, of responses. It was very interesting, and I'll talk about those in a moment. Ben mentioned a man, Mark Driscoll, who pastors a church in Seattle called Mars Hill Church. And I ended the message last week with a saying from Mark Driscoll, and he said, their church wants to be theologically conservative, yet culturally liberal. And what he means by that is that on things that the Bible specifically forbids that are sinful, that we want to be conservative on those things. That's sex outside of marriage, you know, the Ten Commandments, things like that, where the Bible is specific about, we want to be conservative on. Now, where the Bible is not specific about, we don't want to add rules to the Bible. And we know that Christ said, you shall know the Son, and the Son shall set you free And Paul also talked about that in Galatians, about Christian freedom, that we have certain freedoms in Christ. And as Christ did himself, he lived in those freedoms. I mean, I don't know how many of you men could have a prostitute massaging perfume on your feet, but he definitely lived in freedoms that I myself couldn't do. So Christ has given us some freedoms, and I think he's given us those to do what he did, to go seek and save that which is lost to go be with tax collectors and sinners as he was. He gave those freedoms as love for other people, to go out and meet those people and engage in in activities in the culture to be with those people. Now, last week I, I gave an example of the pastor that started a church mostly from going to bars, that he would hang out in bars and meet people. When people talked to me about that, I said, well, you know, I would do that, but I'm afraid of being judged. And that's a good fear because that probably would happen. I mean, say you're, you're going down Main Street and you see a mature Christian couple walking out of the Duke of Windsor. Some people go, huh, wow, I think that couple might have gone off the deep end and started hitting the sauce a little too much or something. And so your first reaction for many of us is to judge them like, wow, what are they doing coming out of the Duke of Windsor? And so I'd encourage you that if you are one of those couples that God's put it on your heart to go hanging out in bars and nightclubs and and places where Christians don't normally go, is to do it, but do it in accountability. Go along with your husband or wife or another brother and sister in Christ. And just as a matter of accountability and protection, and even letting your community group know or letting others in the church body know that that's why you're going there. Your purpose to go into those places is to meet people and to build relationships or you maybe have friends that maybe go to those places occasionally. So let other people know. For those of us that maybe see them there, 
is to not jump to a judgment right away, is to communicate. And so when you see each other again and go, well, I saw you leaving the Duke of Windsor or whatever it was and just interested what's going on there. And just to communicate and not to jump to some kind of conclusion like many of us would do. Like I talked about last week, one thing we do always need to be careful of is being a stumbling block. And Paul talks about that, and he'll talk about that again today, is we don't want to be a stumbling block to the weaker, less mature believers. And so to always consider that. And one verse that kind of rang in my heart this week was at the end of Romans chapter 14, in verse 23, it says that whatever is not in faith is sin. Whatever is not in faith is sin. To consider, especially in these gray areas and when you're participating in those activities, is what you're doing, is that in faith? Because I know I can be up here, I can even be preaching or someone could be in Sunday school and not be in faith, not be filled with the Holy Spirit and can be in sin. And so that really convicted my heart this week to whatever our activities are, whatever we do, should always be in faith and always be pointing to the cross to further the gospel. And that's what Paul was doing. He wanted to use those freedoms to further the gospel or restrict those freedoms to further the gospel. Whatever it took, he didn't want to make a hindrance to the gospel. I had a really cool graph of our gray area survey, but it didn't print out. I was frantically trying to get a slide for it, but I didn't get it. But there was quite a bit of diversity of the results. And I said, is it okay to listen to secular music? And I think it was overwhelmingly okay. Many people said, oh yeah, it's okay to listen to secular music. But then it kind of dwindled down, and I think around the middle was R-rated movies. I mean, you guys were kind of split on R-rated movies, whether it's okay or not. And, and I can understand that because for myself, there are certain R-rated movies I have no problems with, like, you know, Rambo, beat em up shoot em violent type of movies. <laughs> Man, give me those. I love them. The more violence, the better. You know, cutting off heads. It's great. Love it. So I'll watch, I'll watch any of those R-rated movies. But then ones with sexual content, boy, I'll stay away from them. I will not watch those. That's, I mean, I just can't watch those kind of movies. And so that's the gray area probably you saw on the R-rated movies. But I saw something interesting that I wanted to point out is about four or five of you said that it wasn't okay to watch an R-rated movie. And then I asked, did you engage in that activity? And the same person said, yes. So one I kind of challenge, it could be because of that same issue I'm talking about, or it could be because you're not listening to your conscience. Okay, you need to do what Jiminy Cricket said and listen to your conscience. Because if you don't listen to your conscience, you get a weak conscience. That's an issue. You want to always follow your conscience and listen to what your conscience says. And by doing that, obedience builds a stronger conscience. So just as a caution to whoever that's out there is to remember, listen to your conscience. If your conscience says, don't watch that movie, you shouldn't watch that movie. And another issue that, and I didn't put it on there, but and I should have now in retrospect, is dancing. I thought about putting dancing on there. Is it okay for a Christian to dance? And if any of you have a Baptist background, you probably get a chuckle out of that because... They didn't think it was okay. A lot of churches didn't think it was okay to dance. And I had a circumstance happen to me that kind of brings this to light. Um, did the Piper Down concert, if you guys remember, a couple of years ago with a youth band that came into the rec center. And they were wild. I mean, they played some wild music, loud, crazy music. And 
The youth loved it, and especially the teenage boys. They're starting to slam dance and mosh and, you know, bang up against each other. And one of the youth leaders or some other youth leaders there came up to me and he goes, man, we got to stop them from doing that. And I thought, well, yeah, it's kind of a safety issue. You probably should stop him. He goes, well, no, we need to stop them because our body is a temple of God and we can't, you know, let them do that because our body's a temple of God. And I, and I kind of grimaced at that because in, in some ways that's kind of uh, legalism. They're taking uh, scripture and they're sticking it on something and building the rule off of it. And if you would take that thought farther, I thought, well, that means that you can't play football, you can't, you don't wrestle, you can't box. I mean, anytime your bodies smash up against each other, you can't do that because your body's a temple. And so I just caution us in legalism, that we wouldn't add rules that God doesn't have in the, the Word of God and that we build a case for things by using Scripture. I know a lot of us have legalist tendencies. I mean, I know I do. Many people have a tendency for legalism. And I work with a guy who is very liberal on many things. You know, he's, he's pro-abortion, he's pro-homosexuality and all those things. He's very liberal about those things, but he's very legalistic about environmental issues. I mean, he gets mad if you throw your gum wrapper out the window. So I think even non-believers have a tendency towards legalism. And so we need to watch our, our tendencies towards legalism and building rules with no reason behind those things. All right. If you would open to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we're going to look at the first 14 verses of chapter 9 this morning. And as I said last week, Paul in chapter 8 talks about the principle of freedom. And Christ gives us some freedoms, and he uses the example of meat sacrifice to idols. And last week, I put that at the bottom of the survey. Is it okay for Christians to eat meat sacrificed to idols? And I was surprised how many of you said, no, it's not okay. So maybe you thought I was giving you a trick question or something. But actually, everything I put on the survey is not specifically forbidden in Scripture. And so it is actually okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Then I gave reasons of why Paul didn't do that. That the stronger, more mature believers were eating this meat sacrificed to idols, while the weaker ones were offended by that. They're like, just came out of pagan idolatry, and they were like, man, what are they doing going back into it? They're, they're going right back into this idolatry. And so they're offended by that. And Paul ends the whole chapter by in verse 13 by saying this. He says, If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul transitions and he starts using himself as an example of someone who gives up their rights. And he's giving up his right to eat meat sacrificed to idols. He's given up that right. He lives in the freedom of Christ, and he knows he can eat this meat sacrificed to idol. But out of love and regard for the weaker brothers and others, he gives up that right. So today, as we go into chapter 9, we will see that he gives up his rights in a big way. He gives up his rights to a salary, to making a living by the gospel, so that he will not hinder the gospel in any way. He does that to the church in Corinth. But then we'll see today that Paul, as a masterful defense attorney, will lay out this 
eloquent argument about why ministers deserve to be paid for preaching the gospel. They deserve to be paid. And so that is the thesis that Paul lays out today that I will explain to you as we go through 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So let's bow and let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for the trials with no electricity and sitting in the cold, sitting in the dark. Lord, I just believe that allows more for uh, to take away the natural and to super empower your supernatural. And so I ask you in a supernatural way to empower us today where we lack the human power and the power from this world. We just draw on your power today. That you would empower us through your word, that you'd speak to our hearts, and that you would mold us and shape us more into your image. Lord, that we would draw closer to you and closer to one another in unity of the Spirit, and that we will cast our eyes upon you and, and what you've done for us and how amazing your grace is and how we just want to dwell and live in your grace every day. And I pray these precious things in your name. Amen. All right, we're going to be looking at the first 14 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Starting in verse 1, and we'll look at the first six verses right here, Paul uses questions. He uses rhetorical questions, just like a good defense attorney. He'll use a rhetorical question to really prompt the Corinthians to think, to cause them to think about where they were and about his right to being able to make a living off of the gospel. So let's look at the first six verses. Verse 1, it starts by saying, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to you, those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? The first six verses, Paul is using himself as an example. And the first two verses, he paints out his qualifications, his qualifications of of being an apostle. And the first one is, He is free. Now, chapter 8 was all about the strong, mature Christians. It was directed towards them and that they were free. And he even builds a case for them. You better believe it. You are. You are free in Christ and you are free to eat meat sacrificed to idols because their idol is nothing. And then idol cannot contaminate meat. So you're free. In the same way, Paul's saying, am I not free? Am I not just as free as you guys? In fact, he's probably saying, I'm even more, because I taught you guys about Christian freedom. I taught you what it means to be free in Christ. So this rhetorical question is saying, you better believe it. Of course I'm free. I have much more freedom in Christ, because I have more knowledge. I know more about Christ. And then he builds his case even more by saying he's an apostle. Am I not an apostle? And a lot of people maybe questioned that because the first 12 disciples were the apostles, so to speak. And Paul, maybe he was on the outside, thought maybe he wasn't an apostle. But Paul definitely was. Him and Barnabas were basically the apostles to the Gentiles. And there's in Acts chapter 13 and 15, 
And also in Ephesians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 14 talks about Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. And the apostle really means one sent or a messenger. So he went out from the church to the Gentiles and he was a messenger, a missionary, apostle of, to the Gentiles. Then he builds his case even farther by saying that he saw Jesus our Lord. He saw him. Now many go, well, he didn't see him in the flesh. And that's right, he didn't. On the road to Damascus, he saw Jesus. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and spoke verbally to him. That's in Acts chapter 9 and also in Acts chapter 18 and 22. Jesus spoke to Paul specifically in visions and he spoke with him. So Paul's building his case that he did see Jesus. He saw the resurrected Christ. So confirms him being an apostle. And finally, a final qualification is conversions. That many people came to faith in Christ under Paul's ministry. In fact, the whole church in Corinth was birthed because Paul was their church planner. He planted that church and they came to faith in Christ under his ministry and became believers in Christ. And it says that that is the seal, the seal of his apostleship. So that's really affirming him as a qualification that God is really affirming his ministry because people are coming to faith in Christ. And so I ask you, have you seen any conversions in your life? Have you led anyone to Christ? Has anyone in your ministry come to faith in Christ? If so, that's an affirmation of your ministry, that God is really affirming what you're doing. Now next, in verse 3, Paul lays out his defense. Verse 3 says, My defense to those who examine me is this. So he obviously was on the attack, and people were attacking his apostleship and his rights. And so now he's going to lay down his defense, and mostly his defense for why he should get paid. Maybe there's people who think he shouldn't have got paid. So he's going to lay down his defense for why he should have made a living from the gospel. In verse 4 it says, and he goes back to the rhetorical questions again, he says, do we not have a right to eat and drink? He uses we here a lot because he's talking about him and Barnabas many times when he says we and maybe others that were around him, and maybe Timothy as well. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? And the answer, of course, is yes, of course he does. Just like anyone else, they have a right to eat and drink. They have a right to get food and be fed just like anyone else does. And then the next question is, do we have a right to take along a believing wife just as the rest of the apostles? From this verse, I'd gather that all the apostles had believing wives and even Cephas, who's Peter had a believing wife. And the brothers of Jesus had believing wives. So he's saying that these men, if they wanted to have a wife, don't they have the right to have their wife make a living off the gospel as well? So not only is he laying down a case for why the minister of the gospel should be earning a living, but he's also laying down the, the case that his wife should also be able to earn a living and not have to work from the gospel. Finally, he talks about bivocational. Do Barnabas and I have a right to refrain from working? As we know, Paul was a tent maker. In Acts chapter 18, it talks about that he had a tent 
tent-making business, and he was brought up in the trade of tent-making. Many of the people in the Sanhedrin and the Jewish culture, they were brought up in a trade so they could work with their hands, and that's what Paul was. He was brought up in the trade of making tents. In Acts chapter 20, it says that not only did he use this tent-making ministry, but he also taught others. Acts chapter 20, verse 34 says, These hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. So not only did he use tent-making to earn a living, but he also taught other people in his ministry tent-making to earn a living. Now, tent-making is kind of a big buzzword nowadays. And a lot of people are saying, well, I have a tent-making ministry, and that's part of our church is we want everyone to be a tent-maker, basically be bivocational. Work at the church, but they earn their living mainly from another job. That's a big thing nowadays. Presbyterian Church even has a tent-making group in the Presbyterian Church. And so that's big in a lot of churches nowadays. And I even kind of got into it. I'm like, well, that's what I do. I earn my living at another job, but I do ministry here at the church. In fact, all of us, all the pastors do that. We earn our living somewhere else. But Paul here is building a case against that, really. He's saying, do I have to really be bivocational? Do I really have to support myself? His answer, you'll see later, is no. That he believes that the church should be supporting him. He should make his living completely from the gospel. So he continues on his defense in verse 7 by using some real-life examples. Some professions of that day, if you will. And the first profession he talks about is that of a soldier. The soldier, as we know, there's not many volunteer armies out there. They wouldn't last very long. And the soldiers mainly aren't bivocational. If they were, then their interests would be diverted. When they should be on war, and they have their interests on something else, and so they're not going to be in a very good position if their interests are diverted when they should be fighting wars. And so he's laying a claim for the soldiers that the soldier during that day was paid. The Greek or Roman soldier was paid, and they are paid full-time to do that job. And that was their job. And then he goes on to talk about those who watch over a vineyard, similar to a farmer, watching over the vines. And do they not have the right to eat the grapes from that vineyard? And of course they do. They put the time in. They planted the seeds They watered the plants, they tilled the soil, they tore out the weeds, they kept and protected the the vines from insects and infestations. Of course they deserve to eat from the grapes. And then he finally talks about the shepherd or rancher, someone who has cattle or goats and gets milk from that. And that they spend all their time watching over these livestock, they definitely deserve to get the milk from what they do. So Paul furthers his discussion and argument by using three professional examples. Now in verses 8 through 11, he uses the Bible. He uses God's word in his defense. So look with me in verse 8 through verse 11. It says, Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? 
Yes, this was written for us. Because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? What does the Bible say about paying ministers? Well, let's look at that first verse in verse 9, where it talks about do not muzzle the oxen. And this is back in Deuteronomy chapter 25. He uses a verse from the law, the Old Testament law. That, of course, when you have an oxen and he spends all day plowing your fields, you do not deny that oxen food. If you would, you'd starve him to death and what would happen? You'd probably die. And then you've lost your man or your power to do your work, to do your job. This would be like not putting gas in your car, being able to go to work. Or if you're a farmer, not putting gas in your tractor. Okay, It's foolishness. Of course you're going to feed your oxen. Of course you're going to put gas in your car. And this verse is also used in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And it's used in verse 18. And just before he uses this verse, he says this in verse 17. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So I'm not exactly sure what double honor means, but it probably means more than the average income of most people. It means an honorable or respectable pay or that we should give them honor and respect, not only with how we respect them, but probably in how we pay them for their living. And then in verse 17, he talks about spiritual blessings equal material blessings. So if you've sown a spiritual seed, you should reap a material harvest. So if those that teach the Word of God, the spiritual Word of God, the seed of God, the gospel, and they've spread it and taught people of it, Do they not deserve a material harvest from that to be paid back from that? They definitely do. Just like a college professor, when he prepares what he's doing and teaching people, then those students deserve to pay him. Or more likely, the parents of those students usually pay them. Most of you that have college students. And in Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, it says this, Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. So if you've received instructions in the Word and you felt like you've been taught and fed in the Word, you should give back blessings to your teacher. So there's a hat at the back and you can just start paying me now. I'm just to you. <laughs> okay. The next topic is the pattern of others, verses 12 and 13. You guys still with me? You guys freezing out there? Okay, warm up a little bit. Okay, the pattern of others, verses 12 and 13. In verse 12, it says this, If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. He is saying here that The church in Corinth, probably right then now, when he was writing in this letter, they were paying their ministers. They were paying their pastors. It was Apollos or not sure who it was, but they were paying them now. So for some reason, they didn't pay Paul and Barnabas, but now they are paying Apollos 
to do his work. He is earning a living from that. So now he's using the church themselves and his example of paying their pastors. And it's reason to believe that Paul was actually supported as a missionary, probably from the church in Philippi. And in Philippians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, it talks about how they gave him two gifts. He gave him financial gifts for his ministry when he went to the church of Macedonia in Thessalonica. So he was being supported by other churches. And in 2 Corinthians, he talks about this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8, he said, I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service. I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service. So he's getting supported financially from the outside. But why did he do this? Why? He gives a reason why in the end of verse 12. He said, but we endured all things. And this word endure is present tense. That means when he's writing this letter, he's still enduring these things. And he's still saying, I will continue to endure these things. Why? Why would he endure these things? So that he would cause... No hindrance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, he wanted to give up his rights. He said, I'm going to give up my rights for money because I do not want to hinder the gospel in any way. And isn't that true? For a non-believer, a lot of people are affected by money and pay and even paying ministers and feel like that's just not right. They shouldn't be paid. And so Paul's saying, man, I don't want that to become a hindrance to the gospel. I'm going to forego my rights to be paid so that they would come and know the wonderful Savior. They would come and have peace and joy that I feel every day. I don't want to hinder that in any way. And so I'm going to forego my pay so they come to know the Lord and Savior. And that I will get to enjoy the wonderful knowledge of knowing that I'll be with them in heaven someday. And also he goes on and uses the Old Testament practice as a pattern of others. In verse 13 he says, Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is all offered at the altar? So he's basically talking about the Old Testament priests that they earn their living from what they did. They earn their living from their ministry and they got fed from what people brought to the altar, brought to the temple. And the Jewish people would bring their very best to the altar, so they ate very well in their society. In fact, they were better off than most of the other people in their society. They were paid and they earned a living that was better than the people in their culture and the people in the Jewish society. So he's using them also as another illustration of why he should be paid, why he should earn a living in the gospel. And then finally, verse 14, the coup de grace, the final climax of his concluding comments is this. In verse 14, he says that Jesus himself commanded it. Look at verse 14. It says, in the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So what's he talking about here? Well, it's cross-referencing back into Luke chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, 
This is where Jesus sends out the 12 disciples. So he's been ministering to them. And now he talks to them about going out, going out door to door and healing people and spreading the gospel message door to door. And in verse 7, he says, go to places, go door to door, but stay in that house that accepts you, eat and drink there. And then whatever they give you, partake of it for the worker deserves his wages. So he believed that what they were doing, going out working, sharing the gospel with people was work and they deserved to be paid for that. They deserved their wages. They deserved to have food and drink and make a living from it. And Matthew chapter 10, he now sends out 72 others above and beyond the 12 disciples. He'll sends out 72 other disciples, they call them, 72 others to do the same thing, to go out door to door and share the gospel message. And in verse 9 and 10, it says, Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff. And it concludes by saying, For the worker is worthy of his keep. So he's telling them not to take anything with you. Trust the Lord. He will provide because you're doing a work. You're spreading the gospel. You're spreading the gospel message. And the Lord will give you material blessings from that. You'll be able to earn your living from spreading the gospel. So he's saying the Lord himself is commanding it. That those who preach the gospel deserve to earn a living from the gospel. Now I know it bothers some people to hear that. That ministers should be paid. Especially as I said, non-believers, they don't think ministers work. They think they work one day a week, right? Get up and give a half an hour message and that's all they do. The rest of the time they take long naps, go fishing, chill out. And then it bothers a lot of people to think that a pastor would get paid the average salary. Seems like, maybe that's maybe a little too high for a pastor. They really do that much work. And that really bothers people if they make more than they do. If a pastor makes more than they do, that's like, well, man, I make this much and I work really hard and they make more than me. Ah, that really bugs me. You know, maybe people don't say it, but I know inside what they're thinking. In 1863, there was a letter to Nathaniel Hawthorne from another poet called John Godfrey Sachs. And he said this, he said, I suspect that the spirit of our blight regarding religion is that we feel that we must keep the preacher poor so that God will keep him humble. Well said. (laughs) I think that has kind of perpetuated over time. This is 1863, yet I did a lot of research about what is the average income of a pastor. In Crown Financial Ministries, they said the average annual salary of a pastor who works 60 hours a week for a congregation of 123 regular in attendance makes 32700 a year. That's from the National Association of Church Business Administration. So I don't know what the poverty level is, but I'm afraid that's getting perilously close to the poverty level. The church in America, I don't think, understands what Christ and Paul understood about someone who preaches the gospel. Paul said they're worthy of double honor. They're worthy of making their living from the gospel. I don't know exactly what that means or what the salary means, but 
I think that means it should be esteemed. And, and, and a lot of times, many pastors don't even ask for money. They typically don't ask for any more. They don't ask for raises. They don't ask for more money because they do want to give up their rights. I know for me, I don't want to ask for it because I want to give up my rights. I don't want anything to hinder the gospel, the furtherance of the gospel. But I think today, Paul clearly articulates that they're worthy of making their living from the gospel. And I know for us today at Windsor Community Church, we have no full-time pastor, and you may be wondering why we don't. The circumstances we're in with planting a church, we believe that we can further the gospel by planting a church in Greeley. And so we forwent our rights, us as pastors, for getting paid to further the gospel in Greeley and to send out the church in Greeley and to financially support that. We don't want to hinder the gospel going out. But I would believe that over time, God will provide here for someone to be full-time, maybe even two or three people over time. We just trust the Lord that people that work in this church and minister in this church will be paid and make a living from the gospel. And I want to talk about it a little briefly is at the end is um, the great giveaway and see how you guys are doing on the great giveaway because... I believe that that is a furtherance of the gospel. That is a great way to further the gospel, is to take that $100 to further the gospel. And I have actually $100 here. If you two weeks ago did not take the $100 for the great giveaway, and God has put it on your heart over these next two weeks, that, man, I want to, I want to invest that in the community. I, you know, God's put it on my heart for a way to use that $100 to, to reach people in our community to further the gospel, then come and talk to me later. I'll have this $100 for you. And God's put on your heart to do something. Boy, we want to we wanna support you in that and, and free you up to do what God wants you to do in furthering the gospel in Windsor. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning and pray that you would speak to our hearts and pray that you would bless this time and bless your word and as you spoke through your word and speak into our hearts and use it just uh, the way you want to um, convict us and change us and shape us in your image. And maybe that you've uh, taken away our paradigms of what we think about how we should pay pastors and just how we should honor and look towards those who preach the gospel and live a ministry through the gospel of preaching the gospel. And Pray that you'd speak through our heart, through your word, because I know you have to mind this week and, and how important it is for those that earn a living in ministry and preaching the gospel. So Lord, go with us today and empower us, make us more like you, and further the gospel. Help us to deny our own rights and anything that we think are a perceived right in our life and deny those things so that we would not be a hindrance to the gospel, so that we would further the gospel in the community of Windsor. Lord, help us to be brokenhearted for the lost in Windsor. Help our hearts to be totally broken and get out of our comfort zone and probably take us to places that we wouldn't normally go because you are moving us there, Lord. Help us to be missionaries in Windsor. By your power, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.